Exodus 32. I wonder this morning what idols you are harboring in your heart and life. And I do think it would serve us well to give attention to that question. What idols have taken up residence in your heart and life? The late Tim Keller helpfully defined an idol this way. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And so what idols are harboring in your heart this morning? As we think about passages like Exodus 32, we think about biblical times, many of us, I believe, we struggle to understand the attraction of idolatry in the ancient world. I mean, what seems so alluring to bowing down to an image that's made out of wood or stone? And while you and I may make judgments about the practice, uh, surely we can understand the allure. Idols in the ancient world promised reward. Idols in the ancient world oftentimes cost you little. Idols in the ancient world were easy to see. Worship to them was easy to do oftentimes. Idols in the ancient world made you feel good. And in large part, idols in the ancient world didn't offend many others. The Puritan David Clarkson said, Honestly, physical idolatry, the act of bowing down with your body to a physical image, is not really all that different. And a lot less prevalent than the sin which he called soul idolatry, bowing down in your heart to something that doesn't have a physical image. In other words, Clarkson would say, you can make almost anything an idol. Doesn't have to be a statue. And in fact, it almost never is. So this morning we arrive at one of the more sobering of all of the passages in Exodus chapter 32. In our passage this morning, God's people will break their newly sealed covenant that they've made with God. And they'll do this in pretty fl flagrant fashion. They will make an idol. They will hold a worship service for it. This is Israel's version of Genesis chapter 3. 
The devastating ruin of sin serves as the dark backdrop in this chapter, and it would send all of us into spiritual despair were it not for the rays of hope that abound for one reason, the mercy of our God. In fact, that's the title of the sermon. God's mercy amid sin's ruin. And so before we jump in, I would just ask you to pray along with me that we would be able to behold these two realities, sin's ruin and God's mercy. Let's pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you. We're asking that you would give us eyes to see that you would give us hearts that are willing to be honest before you and with ourselves that would then lead to confession to you and to others. Oh Lord, search us. Search us. May we not run away this morning from the searching of your spirit through the preaching of your word. <laughs> Give us confidence that we can be searched and because of the work of Christ, we can still be known and loved. And so wash that truth over us, we pray. And so would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use the one in front of you, and I invite you to open to Exodus chapter 32. If you're using one of the pew back, I'll be preaching out of the New American Standard translations. That's one of the two that are in front of you. This morning, we have two points, and those two points are repeated. So this morning, we have four points. They're just the same two. In the event you're thinking, wow, I thought he said there were only two. There's four, but they're the same two. And so as we walk through Exodus chapter 32, let's allow these points to serve as our guide. First point, the sin of the people. The sin of the people. You heard that in verses 1 through 10. In the passage that Alex read this morning, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord. And at the base of the mountain, the people begin to realize that it's been a while since they've heard from Moses. It's actually been a while since they've seen Moses. He'd been gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And up until this point, it wasn't a cause for concern. Why? Well, because of everything that the Lord had just walked them through. He miraculously delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. He graciously led them to the place in which they would be. He provided manna. He provided quail. And then they were able to know that the Lord was there meeting with Moses as they saw the cloud descending and sitting upon the top of the mountain. 
And so up until now, this hasn't been a concern. But we read Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. Listen to the shots that they take at Moses. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The phrase there, they assembled about Aaron. The other times that's used throughout the scriptures, it's not a gathering together of friendly people. It's always used to talk about how a mob was incited. And so don't think of people coming together to hang out with Aaron. In fact, think more like a mob coming to demand something from Aaron. And so what do the people do? They complain. They disregard the pledge that they have made. They turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what Moses said, wait here. God has told us and God has provided every step of the way. We can still wait until the meeting is over. And so the people at the bottom of the mountain, they want reassurance. And they seek it in the form of an idol. This demanding mob insists that Aaron makes for them an idol that would represent God. And maybe in stunning fashion, Aaron is compliant more than he is courageous. One commentator says, the part Aaron plays in Exodus 32 is criminally feeble. The other question, if you've been following along, Aaron wasn't the only one that was left to give some leadership. We think also, well, what about her? Her, her was left behind. And he seems to be nowhere to be found. Aaron, def- Aaron fails to defend Moses. And this is exactly what Moses said. Moses said, wait for us here. As the elders went up, and a little bit further, Joshua went up, and then Moses ascended, highest above all, meeting with the Lord himself. And so Aaron should have stood up in the moment and said, no, no, this is what Moses said, and this is what we're going to do. Absence of good leadership, especially when a mob is forming, doesn't serve the people. In fact, it hurts people. Aaron's leadership here could have been a game changer. Just a reminder, I think, for us all to pray. To pray for courageous leadership. And when the Lord provides it, thank him for it. In verses 2 through 4, instead, instead of Aaron providing and stepping in the gap and providing needed leadership, what's he do? He has the people take their gold earrings and he melts it and he fashions it into a calf. Why a calf? Well, if we go to Exodus chapter 7, verse 39, the sermon that Stephen preaches before he's put to death, this is what Stephen says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, 
but repudiated him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They turned back to Egypt. Recall the plagues that happened in Egypt. The plagues were not merely a statement about the strength of God, though that they were. They were also a statement about the powerlessness of the idols and the Egyptian gods. And so what did Egypt do? They worshipped animals as representatives of their gods. And what do God's people do here? They borrow from the Egyptians to make a God who is tame and manageable. And Aaron then pronounces in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 4, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That phrase, it's the same phrase that God himself uses before he gives the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. What God had done is now being attributed to this golden calf. And Aaron then builds an altar and he makes a pronouncement that tomorrow morning when we all wake up, a festival is going to happen. A worship service is going to break out. And that's exactly what happened. The people awaken for a day of offerings. The text tells us that they then eat and they drink. And maybe veiled because of our language... Verse 6, they eat, drink, and then they rose up to play. That phrase throughout the scriptures oftentimes has connected to it connotations of sexual immorality. We're going to offer sacrifices. We're then going to eat. We're going to drink. And we're going to give ourselves to the pursuit of physical pleasures. And then we begin to see more clearly what is happening right here. What's happening at the bottom of the mountain is not the people of God worshiping God. It's the people of God worshiping themselves under the guise of worshiping God. And I wonder this morning if that's possible for us. I wonder this morning if that's possible for you. Worshiping yourself under the guise of worshiping God. I mean, they could have set up the, the altar to a golden calf. They could have given offerings to the calf. They could indulge in their fleshly passions before the calf, but the calf was going to do nothing for them. There will be no response from the calf. It will only sit there. I, I'm, I'm helped by what R.C. Sproul has said. He says, the cow here gave no law and demanded no obedience. The cow had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. This religion that was designed by these men, that was practiced by these men, was also very useless for these men. And surely we get it. Like surely we begin to understand more the allure of what they're doing. 
Let's fashion a God who will be okay with our lifestyles, whatever we want to do. Who isn't going to intrude on our pursuits. And who will allow us to indulge all the fleshly pleasures that we desire. In our sin, we all say, give us a God who's loving, who's compassionate, who really doesn't have much holiness, wrath, or justice. And their sin is utter ruin and devastation. And we're meant to feel that in Exodus 32. The utter devastation of the sin. In verses 7 through 10, so verses 1 through 6 gives us sort of the human explanation as to what happens. Verses 7 through 10 gives us the divine perspective as to what has happened. The disobedience of the people arouses the wrath of God. When I say the wrath of God, what I'm saying is his righteous anger, his holy hatred for everything and anything that goes against his good and perfect character. His wrath is aroused because of their disobedience. And their disobedience threatens the plan of God. And so the, the Lord's righteous anger is rightly aroused. One scholar said, what happens at the bottom of the mountain is like committing adultery on your wedding night. The Lord has, verse 7, what's the Lord say? The Lord disassociates himself from his people. Up until now, at every turn, this has been, let my people go. You are my people What's the Lord say in verse 7? Speaking to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. This is an ominous indication of what is to come. They turned aside quickly from their commitment. Verse 8. What commitment? Their commitment in Exodus chapter 24 verse 7. When Moses takes the book of the covenant, he reads it all in the hearing of the people. And they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So just think. think they at least break the first three commandments. First commandment. Have no other gods before me. And what do they do? Aaron, make us a god. Second commandment, no graven image. And here stands this golden calf attributed to be the one who led them, brought them up out of the land of slavery. Third, not using the Lord's name in vain. And Aaron literally attaches the Lord's name to this calf. Verse 9 continues to help us have the perspective of what's happening God says to Moses, they are an obstinate people. They are a stiff-necked people. It's a farming term that would be used when a young ox would be yoked with a more mature beast. The young ox not willing to go with the more mature one next to it. 
We just step back and you begin to think, how in the world did we get here? We got here because God's people doubted God's goodness. Rather than trusting in the providential timing of God, they sought to address what they thought their needs were as it pleased them. But they didn't just doubt God's goodness, they forgot God's works. And that's what Bob read earlier in our call to confession. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory. Their glory was that they belonged to the Creator. And they exchanged that glory for the paltry glory of being able to worship creation. For the image of an ox that eats grass. Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior. They forgot God. They exchanged His glory for something that promised a glory but couldn't deliver a glory. And as a result of their sin, God distances himself from them. These people are willing to bow down to a golden calf, but they will not obey their God. And so God says, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. God is not going to dwell with his people. God is going to consume his people. And at this point, in modern culture, this is where many people begin to say, yep, I don't want that God. I don't want the God who has wrath. In fact, some people would even say, thank goodness the God of the New Testament is not like the God of wrath in the Old. The biblical writers from cover to cover, are not reluctant to draw our attention to the wrath of God. Because the biblical authors know that His wrath is a function of His holiness. When His holiness confronts sin, that equals His wrath. And only those who are aware of his wrath against sinfulness will be stunned at the display of his mercy and grace, which always triumphs over his wrath. And so up until now, this is just, it all sums up what idolatry is. Idolatry is not necessarily the wholesale forsaking of God. No, idolatry is trying to control God. It's we'll take a little bit of God, but we're going to take God on our terms. Give us God, but give us God in our way. We're too afraid to have God himself because he's too dangerous. He's too demanding. And so the, the allure is let's, let, that let's then just chisel and fashion together a substitute that we can use to represent him. 
We want God to look modern. We want God to look manageable. We want God to appear as something that we can handle. We want God to make us, we want a God that makes us less dependent and less accountable. And again, before we gawk at these people in disbelief because they forgot such a great salvation, I wonder if you see yourself in the people. I mean, I'm reading Exodus 32, and what hit me most this week is I am Israel. Like, I'm at the bottom of the mountain. I'm regularly thinking, how can I fashion God into a God who really serves me? I don't think I'm bowing down to animals and idols. But it's so easy for me to doubt God's goodness, to forget his works, and to exchange his glory. And yet, God's mercy triumphing over his wrath is a stunning feature in this passage. And we see that in the second point. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. Just when the darkness appears to hit the worst of all, God says, I am wiping out the people and I'm going to start over with you. We find the mercy of God, verses 11 through 14. Moses is the divinely appointed mediator. A mediator is a person who goes between two parties. And God has so appointed Moses to stand between himself and his people. And what do we find once Moses hears this? Leave me alone. My wrath is going to destroy them and I will start all over with you. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? His first impulse is to to intercede on behalf of the people. And Moses' prayer is a distinctly God-centered prayer. I mean, just think about everything that Moses appeals to in this prayer. Verse 11, what's he do? He says, God, this is your people. Reminding the Lord of his covenant loyalty. This isn't just any people. God, this is your people. He appeals to the character of God. He also appeals to the works of God. Verse 11, your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with, a, with great power and with a mighty hand. So Moses is just rehearsing, God, this is who you are. God, this is what you've done. And then he gets to verse 12. And he appeals even to God's reputation among the nations. What's he say? God, for you to bring your people out of slavery, to bring them here, only then to kill them. Your reputation, you would be seen as evil. You would be seen even as one who doesn't keep your word. And then verse 13 
He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He says, God, I, I just want to rehearse back to you the promises that you have made. Friends, if you're thinking, how can I grow in my prayer life? I would just encourage you. This is a helpful model. Just to be thinking, okay, I want to pray. I want to pray things based on God's character. I want to pray based on God's works. I want to pray based on God's reputation. And I want to pray based on the promises that he has made. And what's interesting, verse, verse 10, now then, let me alone. Now then, leave me alone. I believe verse 10 is an invitation. Not for Moses to leave him alone, but for Moses to intercede. Here's the thing. Leave me alone that my anger may burn against them. And I will make you a great nation. If the Lord is going to consume and wipe out God's people, his own people, then there's no need for Moses to go down the mountain and say anything to the people. And so the invitation really isn't an invitation to get away and now let me do what I'm doing. It's an invitation to draw near and to intercede. This is what mediators do. God only destroys Israel if he leaves God alone, and yet Moses doesn't leave God alone. This invitation to leave him alone, Moses sees as an invitation to intercede and to begin to pray. And so as we walk through this passage, it's helpful. Like, none of us should be perplexed that God's wrath exists in this scenario. What's most perplexing is the display of his mercy that would triumph over his judgment. We should all be freshly amazed at God's mercy here. And so this is what Moses does. He leans into the Lord in prayer. David Platt helpfully summarizes what happens here. And he says, before we understand what happens, it's helpful for us to remember. The Bible is clear, cover to cover. God's perfections never change. God's purposes never change. God's promises never change. And so if God's perfections never change, if his uh, purposes never change, and his promises never change, then what do we do with verse 14? So the Lord God changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And I think verse 14 captures the sweet mercy of God. Moses prays on behalf of the people. And let's just be clear, Moses' prayer doesn't change God's mind, but rather it was the intended means through which God's actions were going to be brought to fruition. Moses' prayer doesn't change God's mind. I think this is a reminder 
and, and, and serves as a really good call for us to devote ourselves to prayer. One of the ways that we will experience his mercy is by giving ourselves to prayer. And let's just be clear. It's not true in Exodus 32, and it's not true today. Prayer is not given for us to control God. Prayer is not given for us to persuade God to do something that he normally wouldn't do. God isn't impotent just waiting for someone to utter a prayer so that he would know what to do. No, we pray because God has ordained that our prayers would unfold his plans just like he had purposed. Do you get that? God knew that it would be the prayers of a mediator that would assuage his wrath on this day. God not only had ordained that his wrath would be held back on this day and wiping his people out, but he also had ordained that that plan would be unfolded as a faithful mediator interceded on behalf of the people. If we stop to think about this, we pray, and in our prayers, God is mercifully calling us to be a part of his history unfolding. Your prayers matter. That's what's at stake. And so church, we must pray. Jonathan Edwards says, only God is able to do the work of God. And it is his will that when God has something great to accomplish for his people, it will be preceded by the extraordinary prayers of his people. You want to give your life to seeing the extraordinary work of God go forth? He's ordained not just that that extraordinary work would go forth, he's also ordained how it would go forth. And and one of the clearest means for how it's going to go forth is through the prayers of his people. If you're not convinced and you say, well, that's Exodus 32, read the book of Acts. Every time the Spirit moves in mighty ways, it can be connected back to prayers of the people. But don't miss the greater mercy here. How is it that God is going to bless a people who were sinfully disobedient? He provides a mediator to pray on behalf of his people. That's what Psalm 106.23 says. He said that he would destroy him had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. A God of just wrath against sin appoints a man with compassionate mercy to stand in the gap on behalf of sinners. Even as I say that, your mind should be thinking, ah, oh, there's one greater than Moses who's done just that. This isn't just the story of this chapter. It's the story of the whole Bible. And the author of Exodus is pointing our attention to the mediator and to his ministry to the people of God. This mediator on this day foreshadows the greater mediator to come. We desperately need someone who can turn God's wrath away from us. 
We definitely, desperately need someone who would come down for us. And the gospel message is that someone has done just that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. John Stott, in his work, The Cross of Christ, says, Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, aren't you glad that the Father said, Son, go down. I mean, aren't you glad that Jesus is the mediator who turns away the wrath that we rightly and richly deserve because of our sin? And the one who went down and turned the wrath of God away by being a substitute on the cross is the risen and ascended Christ who continues his role as mediator. He's continuing even now, church, to make intercession for you. Charles Spurgeon says, How encouraging is the thought of the Redeemer's never-ceasing intercession for us. When you pray, he pleads your case. And when you fail to pray, he doesn't ever cease. He's advocating our cause. He's shielding us from unseen dangers. We, lo- we little know what we owe to our Savior's unceasing prayers. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would just tell you that your only hope to ever stand before a holy God is to have the work of a mediator applied to you. And praise be to God, Jesus the Christ has come perfect life, death on a cross, substitute for sinners, bodily resurrection on the third day. The Bible says if you will turn from your sin and trust in him alone, you will know not just the sting of your need, you will know the balm of relief. I would plead with you, turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Leads us then to the sin of the people. The sin of the people. Verses 15 through 29. Moses had heard all about the idolatry from God. But as he begins to walk down, he and Joshua begins to hear it. And then finally he reaches the bottom of the mountain and he sees it. One theologian says, seeing the spectacle of Israel's idolatry caused Moses to grasp the offense in a way that it did not grasp him before. And Moses' reaction really does mirror the Lord's reaction in verse 10. 
I mean, look, verse 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf, he saw the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And so what does he do? He has just been given signed copies of the tablets. And in righteous indignation, he throws them from his hands and he shatters them at the foot of the mountain. And he takes the calf which they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it over the surface of the water and he made the sons of Israel drink it. Moses' act here is not impulsive. It's very intentional. I mean, this is the place, the bottom of the mountain, where they pledged allegiance to the Lord in chapter 24. And so this symbolic act of throwing down the tablets at this significant and specific location demonstrates both the severity of their sin and the consequences of their sin. Moses breaks the tablets because they had broken the covenant. And so the question then, is there any hope to the restoration of this relationship? Well, Moses destroys the idol, first thing. We've got to get the idol out of the way. He grounds it into powder. Later on in Numbers, we'll see that he put it in the water supply. He calls the people to drink it. It's a vivid picture that this idol that they bowed to worship was a powerless fraud. And there can be no toleration of this idol. And I think this is instructive for you and I as we think about how we fight our sin. There can be no remnant left. It's not, I'll give you a little bit, and I'm going to hold a little bit. It's, I want to rid myself completely of it. Moses then confronts Aaron in, in verses 21 through 24, and he asks Aaron to give an account of his actions. Moses knows that Aaron is, uh, holds primary responsibility. And so what Moses does is he gives Aaron, the leader, an opportunity to repent. Moses knew what these people were like. And no matter what it is that they incited in mob form, Aaron had no right to do what he did. And yet what does Aaron do in verses 21 through 24? He swings and misses completely. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, don't let the anger of, the Lord, uh, of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. You know they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said, well, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I just threw it into the fire and out came a calf. And you're going, what? Where? That's the best you got? One pastor noted that this response was both pathetic and completely dishonest. I mean, Aaron is a perfect picture for how not to take responsibility for your sin. Rather than taking responsibility, he shifts the blame. He misrepresented and he minimized his role in all of it. He left out all of the important details. As I was thinking just about my propensity to do the same, 
former pastor, late 1800s, Philip Brooks, would say, let me refuse to listen for one moment any voice which would make my sins less mine. Moses then turns his attention to the people in verse 25. He gives them the opportunity to repent. And look at what he says. Moses saw the people were out of control. Aaron had let them get there. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. I realize this is the point sin of the people, but this is an expression of the mercy of the Lord. The Levites rally to him, and those who refuse to repent must be cut off. The seriousness of their sin is reflected in the drastic action that Moses makes in this moment. And this action wasn't Moses' idea. It wasn't Moses' preference. It was a command of God. Verse 27, thus, every, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword, those who have come to him, upon his thigh... And go back and forth from the gate, from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. We must not stumble over the violence. This is the justice of God in response to the sin of Israel. They've been graciously rescued out of slavery. They've pledged to commit their life to the Lord. And once they broke these commandments, Paul said it, the wages of sin is death. And if we struggle with this passage, I think it has less to do with who God is and more to do with just either our, our ignorance about the holiness and the wrath and the justice of God, about the seriousness of our sin. Commentator Douglas Stewart said this, the modern person accustomed to the sentimentalism of the Western uh, line of thinking might find the idea of killing idolaters impossible to justify. But Moses, on the other hand, understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of God's people to influence other people away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. Moses' actions, as described in this passage, are not to be copied by New Covenant Christians, but they were to make clear the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. And so the guilty that were unwilling to repent, they did not receive mercy. But they received justice. And in the midst of God showing faithfulness to his justice, he also remembers to show mercy. What should be surprising to us is that of the 600,000 men estimation upwards of over a couple of million people 3000 died on that day so what should surprise us in this passage is not god's justice but his mercy his mercy that's been given so that people could repent and live and so think about what's happened then 
there has been a mercy for those who have repented. But where is the covering for the sin? If the unrepentant are put to death, well, what are we doing with the sin of everyone else? And that leads us to the last point, the mercy of God. Verses 30 through 35. The mercy of God, 30 through 35. Just listen to these verses. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, blot me out from your book which you have written. What? The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish you, I will punish them. Or in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people. ESV reads, sent a plague. Because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This is what Moses knows. Moses knows that mercy has been given, but atonement has not been made. Atonement for sin has to be made if there's going to be right standing with this holy God. There's something more than intercession that's needed. And so Moses says, well, maybe I can make atonement for your sin. He's uncertain. But just maybe... So Moses goes back up and he prays the unthinkable. Moses offers himself to the Lord as a sacrifice for their sin. Let them have forgiveness and blot me out. This is Moses' proposal. Moses knows that sin is forgiven through the sacrifice of of a substitute. And so Moses says, let me be the substitute. Take me, don't take them. Moses prays in a way that up until this point in Scripture, no one has ever prayed. And we see it prayed by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And what does the Lord say in verse 33? He says, no, you cannot make atonement. Moses cannot take upon himself the sin of the Israelites. And so each one of them will experience God's wrath through a plague as a consequence and as a warning. They will be spared death, but they will be led by an angel. We'll see more about this in next week's sermon. And so I get to the end of Exodus chapter 32, and I think, is this the way I thought 32 was going to end? Like Moses standing up saying, I'm willing to go, and I'm willing to stand in the gap, and I'm willing to be the one so that they can be made right with you. Do away with me if you have to. And God's saying no. Even though Moses has served the people effectively as their mediator, there's something that Moses cannot do for them. He cannot atone for their sins. The Lord denies this unselfish request because Moses himself is a sinner. 
And if we learned anything through the Passover events, it was that the substitute that was to be made must be an unblemished one. Moses' life is blemished. And so Moses can't make atonement because Moses needs atonement. Atonement for sin and of sin awaits. And it points us to one who would come that's greater than Moses. We have this hint in chapter 32 of a sacrifice, not of an animal, but of a person. And God's plan is that someone else would die in our place for our sin, but that one must be unstained by sin. And so this would require that there would need one who would be better and greater than Moses. And that's who Moses is pointing us to, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What Moses offers us in verse 32 or chapter 32, only Jesus Christ can fulfill. He's the one that will stand in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. Only Jesus, truly God and fully man, is the only mediator between God and man. And Paul writes about it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Moses points away from himself and points us to the Lord Jesus. Phil Riken says, the more you study Moses himself, the more you get to know Jesus. This is how the Bible works. And in God's new covenant, the judgment for covenant breaking has fallen on the covenant mediator. And this new covenant and the picture of Jesus, it doesn't soften God's wrath. It provides the only perfect solution to God's wrath. And so again, if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you. What's at stake this morning is full atonement, full covering for your sin. Answer the call to Moses. Who is on the Lord's side? You may have walked in not on the Lord's side. You don't have to walk out that way. Turn from your sin and trust in him. Christ alone is the mediator that we need. And for those of us that are in Christ, to be reminded of the new covenant, to be reminded of the better mediator, the Lord has given us a fellowship meal. And so we end our service today coming to this table, having our faith strengthened and nourished. Because though our sin was great, the mercy of God was greater still. And so here at Covenant Life, the Lord's Supper is open to Christians who are baptized, the first public declaration of identifying with Jesus is to go through the waters of baptism. So baptized Christians who are members of good standing in a church that preaches the same gospel you just heard here. And so, Christianity is not a self-acclaimed religion. It's one that God has said, the authority to affirm professions belongs to the church. And so, baptized believer, member of good standing, another local church can give 
credible testifying testimony to your profession. Walking in repentance of sin, willing to turn from sin, and walking in reconciliation of relationship. Again, I'm so helped by Charles Spurgeon's meditation on the Lord's Supper, that this is how I'll lead us to it today. We are taught by the Lord's Supper that the very best way in which we can remember Christ is by receiving him. Oh, the sweetness of the truth, if you will remember Christ when you come to this table. You're not asked to bring bread with you to this table. It's here for you. You're not asked to bring a cup with you. It's already provided. Well, what have you to do? Nothing but eat and drink. You have to be receivers and nothing more. Now, whenever you want to remember your Lord and Master, you need not say, I must do something for him. No, no, let him do something for you. And so take the cup and take the bread and call upon the name of the Lord, for he has done a mighty work for you. Let me pray. Music will play. I invite you to come forward. Take your elements. You can go back, and we'll take the supper together.